EOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, April the 13th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. So we know we've had some snowy conditions in many parts of the province already this week. Some drizzle on the go in St. John's, maybe some flurries later on this afternoon. But have you seen the pictures of the massive snowstorms walloping parts of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Ontario in the middle of April? All right. You can't imagine Team Guzhu and the boys have a single drop of gas left in the tank after the year that they've had. But they went off to the Pinty's Grand Slam. Lost yesterday to Team Epping, only lasted six ends, lost nine to three. So, yeah, off to a rough start at that particular tournament. But, again, they just must be running on absolute fumes. And, of course, at the Pinty's Grand Slam, you never know what's going to pique the interest or draw the ire of the listeners or members of the general public. And this particular one regarding Pinty's is one such issue. So you know the deal, and it caught a lot of attention in the House of Assembly yesterday. My email inbox is overwhelmed with reaction to the announcement that the province is going to spend some $600,000 over three years to attract the Pinty's NASCAR Series to the eastbound International Speedway and Concert Park in Avondale. First phrase is on June 25th, the Pro Line 225. So I get it. Every time we hear government spending money wherever, the comments will be, well, what about this? And the vast majority of them are, what about doctors and nurses? And yes, the, you know, the obligatory road work uh, conversation, what have you. I understand that because it does kind of come out of nowhere. If you listen to a group or an organization like Destination St. John's, and they will have a look at the potential economic impact. And I don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea, but I do know that sometimes we stop with simply looking at the headline, $600,000, and I completely get it when we are all looking around at the shortcomings, specifically in healthcare. That's a fair question to be asked. If Destination St. John's says it's going to generate some $5.4 million in economic activity, Another ripple effect of it is the people that come here for a very short amount of time, because it's middle of their season as race car drivers and teams, if they like it, they might come back. So I completely understand the frustration, but again, you never know what's going to get inside or under the craw of people who are listening to the program, you want to talk about it. We can do it. Congratulations to the Clarenville Caribou. They upset the St. John's Caps last night in Game 7 of the semis. So it was 5-4 uh, in overtime. Chad Earl got a breakaway at 221 and put it away. So they go on to face the Southern Shore Breakers now coming up in the Herder Final. Kevin Reed had a pair for the winners. Mike Cole had the Hattie, the hat trick for the Caps. But the Clarenville Caribous, I think they only had five wins in the regular season. The Caps led the way. They were 15-1. and one, And now they are, have ended the year as Clarenville moves on in the Herder Championships. Okay. Just a couple of stats. Who doesn't like a good stat? Sticking with hockey for a second. In the ECHL, we know the Growlers have secured their playoff spot. And they are absolutely odds-on favorites to win the Kelly Cup again. Here's some curious ones. There are three teams in the ECHL that have averaged more than 3.5 goals per game and allowed fewer than three goals per game. They're all cup contenders. At the top of that chart is the Growlers. They've scored 3.95 goals per game and only given up 2.89 goals per game. That's a pretty solid ratio if you're moving into some playoff action. 
One more. This is, I think, just a curious story. For any of you who ever went to a hockey game or an event at Memorial Stadium when it was in its glory, you know, it really does still kind of shock me every now and then when I drive by the stadium where I played a lot of hockey to see it as a grocery store. Now, I'm glad the building's been preserved. And some of the people that were interested in taking away some memorabilia from the stadium did exactly that in the auction that happened in 2001. This lady named Denise Coster, she bought the clock, not the big score clock, game clock above center ice, but the clock that was just alongside the picture of the queen. So in your minds, I can probably picture it. It's not in the script, but it's a four-foot-tall clock. She bought it at auction for $45. She's downsizing. She'd like for someone to be able to buy it and put it maybe on public view. So there's a story on our website if you're interested in that. I just thought it was quite curious that that clock is in someone's home. Imagine $45. Pretty good, pretty good bargain right there. And also, hearing a lot of people, especially female rowers, chiming down on the decision based on the Royal, uh, Royal St. John's Regatta Committee doing away with the gender-based courses. And of course, again, some people might not read beyond the headline. So in June, they're going to test drive it. So there'll be a men's short course, a women's long course. It doesn't mean men and women rowing in the same race. It means that women's crews can sign up to row the long course. A lot of excited crews out there, certainly amongst the top teams. It also may indeed reinvigorate some interest on the male side because the numbers are down. A lot of female crews, and that's terrific, not a whole lot of male crews like we've seen in years past for men's crews. Some of it is because the commitment of time for training, which is actually a lot of fun once you get into it, but also the physical impact of trying to conquer that long course is a pretty monumental task. Maybe, just maybe, given the fact that a lot of rowers or potential rowers or young athletes out there might say, man, that short course, that's appealing to me. <laughs> so you might see a, a significant number of men's short course races, but that sounds like good news to me. What do you think? A couple of interesting todays in history. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the issues that we deal with day in and day out. It was today in history, 1964, that Sidney Poitier became the first black man to win an Oscar for Best Actor in The Lilies of the Field. So he grew up in poverty in the Bahamas. He actually spent his first few months in New York sleeping in the bus, bus station's men's room, wins the Oscar in 1964. Tiger Woods became the first black golfer to ever win a major and became the youngest player ever to win the Masters tournament at Augusta, Georgia, which of course just happened this past weekend. He won by 12 strokes and smashed every record in the books. That was in 1997. And this one I think is really funny. The, have you ever played any ping pong, any table tennis, Dave? It's a difficult game to keep the ball in play. The longest doubles table test match ended after a four-day marathon between four Americans, Lance, Phil, and Mark Warren, and Bill Weir. They played for over four days, 101 hours, one minute and 11 seconds back in 1979. One match. And this is another good one before we move on. The longest table, te table tennis rally in history in singles lasted 10 minutes, 766 shots in one rally. I'm not sure I've ever played in a rally that had 25 shots. So 766 shots. If you've ever seen it played at the ultimate level, it's something else. Let's move on. So let's go to the schools, the education system. There is a teacher allocation formula review ongoing now. That would include the ratio of the number of students per teacher. There is money in the budget to keep the additional guidance counselors uh, in play for the upcoming school year. That's a good, that's a good move. We know that there's going to be a student enrollment increase for the first time in 50 years in front of us, maybe some thousand students more than they had forecasted. Many of them may indeed be immigrants. So the key will be preparation, whether it be English as a second language supports in the classroom and whatever else may be on the table. We'll talk about class size and composition. All important. 
But I'll bring this one up again because we know, and a family has reached out to me in the recent past to say they haven't even sent their child back to school since the return to school plan. One of the parents is severely immunocompromised, so they're playing it very, very safe. Okay. The issue that came from the Child and Youth Advocate in a report, that was uh, done by Jackie Lake Kavanaugh some couple, three years ago, regarding the numbers of students that are chronically absent from school. And at that time, it was some 10%. So in and around 6,600 students had missed uh, the significant amount of time to be deemed chronically absent. You wonder what that number looks like now. Because even if you're given some work to do at home, because you're isolating for one reason or another, you or someone in your family has tested positive, it's just not the same as being in the classroom. So there's going to be families concerned that their child may or may not be fully prepared for the next grade level. So I wonder what that looks like. I also wonder, given that report, which I think is critically important, because we know the importance of school and in, and in education, in grade six, if you're chronically absent, 75% of those students will not graduate high school. And it used to be you could find a way to make your way in the workforce and in the adult world with, uh, without a high school education, maybe scramble about with a high school education. But this day and age, with the competition for jobs, the opportunity for gainful, meaning, meaningful employment is severely hampered if you don't have a high school education. So we need to understand what's going on there. It also requires a variety of different government departments to be working on this issue. It's not just the Department of Education, because we have to understand why the students are absent. Is it a matter of transportation, or domestic violence, or sickness, or who knows what? Because if we don't understand why they're absent, we can't do much to deal with the issue in and of itself. So I just wonder what those numbers will look like at this moment in time, given the fact there's been a real staggered couple of school years, and we understand, obviously, that a well-educated public is going to be one of the keys to our long-term successes and viability or sustainability here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So I'd be curious to see if there's an update available on that front. And in the world of schools, in the budget this year, there was money set aside for uh, the building of two new schools, one in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, one up in Cartwright. In Cartwright, the Henry Gordon Academy, it's a K-12 school, it was open in the 60s, has no access for people with disabilities. It has all kinds of safety issues given the fact it's on the main road. The school is way too big for the enrollment of 60 to 70 students. So it brings upon two questions. What are we going to do to repurpose that building, Henry Gordon, and whether or not it's actually appropriate for whatever type of repurposing? So that's good news for the folks in Cartwright who were, I think, a little bit surprised that the funding came across. Same thing down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, where they do indeed have an elementary school and a junior high, but now they're going to have a K, pardon me, a grade 10 to 12 high school built in that community. All good news, but I do wonder about the repurposing up in Cartwright, if you want to talk about it. We can do exactly that. Moving on to post-secondary. So I think it's curious, uh, but it's no coincidence, that when it was announced by the province that the Auditor General, given the changes to the Memorial University Act and the Auditor General Act, was going to go in and conduct a comprehensive audit of the spendings, infrastructure, what have you, at Memorial University. Travel, transportation, anything else. Okay, good. Let's have a look. Why not? Why wouldn't we? Uh, President Vianne Timmons says they've had a clean audit year over year since she's been in the position. That's good. But the Auditor General's budget nearly doubled in preparation for this. So the most recent provincial budget said the office will be funded to the tune of $7.6 million. That's an increase of 95% from last year's $3.9 million. The last audit done at Memorial University was done by then Auditor General Terry Padden. That was back in 2014. 
All right, let's have a look and see exactly what's going on. So the Modernized Act is good for all of us, but of course we've seen an additional cut of $13 million for operating costs at Memorial University. The 22-year tuition freeze was most welcomed by a lot of folks, but of course all it resulted in necessarily was an increase in fees. You have a tax break on your tuition, but you don't have the same tax break on your fees. So we kind of set ourselves up for now what we're going to see is a doubling of tuition to some $6,000 for the locals. It was sacrosanct, and we weren't really allowed to talk about it without the pretty quick, swift condemnation for even trying to broach the topic. But the AG going in to have a look. All right, that's probably a good thing. And other moves made at the university that are going to consolidate all of the different, like School of Pharmacy and the med school, nursing school into the health faculty. There was expansion of the nursing school by some 25% of seats. Also expansion for some of the healthcare-related programs at CNA. So some moves being made, but of course they won't deal with the short-term issues that people are painfully aware of here in the province. And if you want to talk about it, we can do it. So while Memorial University looks for increased autonomy, they have to get permission from the provincial government with how they spend donations and or federal monies. So they're looking for that ability to make their own decisions and the Auditor General being uh, sent in in an effort to be transparent, says the government. At the exact same time, the transparency doesn't apply to them. When we talk about the $5 million U.S. Rothschild and Company report that's in hand. So it's not transparency, it's hypocrisy. This is an important body of work. It probably follows up very much in line with Moy Green's report, the, per, uh, the Premier's Economic Recovery Team. But I just don't think it's good enough, and I'm sure many of you are nodding along, because Minister Cody says that there's some commercially sensitive information in there that can't be released. Okay. But she goes on to say that the parts of the report that are not commercially sensitive will also not be released. That's not good. It's not good enough. So we don't even get an idea of what the re recommendations are. This is a massive piece of business that the government will entertain. You know, whether it be the NLC, which I think is the key one that people point to, given the fact it does return over $200 million in this past year to the province, but it doesn't mean we do away with all the, the revenues coming from the NLC if it's sold off and privatized, and what that even means, we don't know. So it's one thing to be transparent with the Memorial University, but apply that same concept to yourselves. Let's have a look at that report. At least see the recommendations. How can we even expect to have a case-by-case -case debate on the floor of House of Assembly if we don't even know what's in the bloody report? So trying to have it both ways is really, I guess, standard operations, but it's not good enough, is it, folks? All right. Quick note on the, the report uh, that was commissioned by Newfoundland Labrador Hydro where they brought in independent consultant Hatch. And they've done some work for the province and hydro in years past. Talking about extending the life of the Holyworth Thermal Generating Station to the end of the decade, possibly. And of course, decommissioning Holyworth was one of the key justifications for the Muskrat Falls project. It comes with a price tag of about $600 million between this year and 2030. All right. So annually, some $65 million annual cost to maintain the facility, which apparently Hatch says is in pretty good shape given its age. That money's adds up to about one cent per kilowatt hour. So am I to understand that if Holy Road remains open, that's an automatic additional eight cents per kilowatt hour to my hydro bill in addition to what's happening with Muskrat Falls, even if they can control it to just under 15 cents with an annual average thereafter of some two to 2.5%? So what does that really mean? And what's the application of Bill 61? So the 2007 moratorium on wind energy and other alternative so, for, uh, forms, now that's been done away with. Okay, 
We don't know what that means for Muskrat Falls and my rates and your rates because it's a fixed cost. So if someone is generating power to operate their facility, that means we're going to pay more for our power coming from Muskrat Falls. Does it also mean that the government, in an effort to provide reliable backup power, might get into the business of wind? Because at this moment of time, it was to allow the private sector to make applications for such projects, even though I'm not even sure how that works. You know, what does transmission look like from an offshore uh, wind farm to whatever market? That's not here. But will that possibly be part of the backup play? And or will we see Holyrood for the foreseeable future? But does it add an automatic, if it's open and running, until 2030, does that mean no question, one cent per kilowatt hour per year to my bill? That's something I don't think we've heard enough about. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? All right, we're on Twitter. Where have you seen open line? Follow us here. Oh, uh, and, of course, one of the topics that, you know, beyond Muskrat, which I thought would never be superseded by any other issue that's been the most controversial and difficult topic, NACI, the immunization group uh, federally, is put forward their recommendations regarding the fourth, fourth dose. Uh, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald will give us more information about that later on today. Until and unless they change the definition of fully vaccinated from two doses in the primary series plus 14 days, then I don't know what the uproar is about. Because if it remains an option for you, then don't do it if you don't want to do it. If they change the definition, we can get into it. And I do think it's absolutely time to talk about any of these mandates regarding vaccination, especially those who are precluded from air travel because they're not fully vaccinated. You can indeed get it and you can indeed spread it, although those likelihoods are diminished if you're fully vaccinated. But those who have not got the vaccine are not going to get the vaccine. So we can't live in an air of simple punishment because we, the vaccine mandates did what they were intended to do. And an awful lot of people across the country got the full series, including the third booster. So unless there's any change to the definition, then if you don't like the sound of a fourth dose and you don't want to get the fourth dose, okay. But the numbers of notes I get about it in complete and utter outrage if you don't want it, don't get it. If they change the definition, then we can go back to whether or not it's fair or people have been coerced. Okay, more information coming on that front a little bit later. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. It's going to tune on the go. One of the absolute legends of the music business, one of the most powerful voices of all time. In 1968, Aretha Franklin was smack dab in the middle of the top ten with Sweet, Sweet Baby. Since you've been gone, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number three. Good morning, Ross. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Fine, thanks for asking. How are you doing? Good. Um, just like to speak a little bit. I don't know a whole lot about the funding that's given towards the NASCAR thing. Um, um, I know that on the news this morning, the Premier mentioned how this is going to help tourism and hospitality and so on. Um, nine years ago, I wanted to start an indoor amusement park and went to the government to see if there any funding, because this idea was a way of creating physical activity for kids, uh, employment for a lot of teenagers, high school age in particular, and university age, and a year-round indoor tourist attraction. But there was absolutely zero money available for me for my venture, so I ended up doing it uh, on my own, a little bit at a time, as I could afford. And as the business made money, we just invested more back into it. So I have trouble understanding sometimes how, you know, the government is here to help, they want businesses to expand, they want to promote tours, and they want to create employment. Uh, they want to promote physical activity because of, of the obesity, especially amongst children. 
I had all that in one package, but yet they were telling me there was no money there for me. So your business would, was a tourist attraction? Well, indoor amusement park action was classified under under the tourism department as a place of tourist, uh, as a tourist attraction, yes. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm I'm not sure what to say. I'm oh, no, sure. I'm just saying, like how uh, I didn't expect you have the answer. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you do have the answer to most everything out there, but <laughs> I, um, I I was just confused. You know that the, the, you know, the premier was saying that this is uh, you know f- good for tourism, but I mean, are people going to travel from other parts of the country to come to Avondale for that one week f- for the next three years to watch NASCAR? Well, they seem to. That's one of those niche sports, right? Because if you like it, the Folks who like uh, stock car racing, they love it. It's part of their summer. That's how they'll schedule up their plans. Uh, I only know that because since the announcement, and I went through a couple of guys who I know, even on the mainland, who have been involved with some of the Pinty series. So if they can attract 10,000 spectators, and we also can add to the pile. I'm not defending the spend because I don't know if it's going to work. You know, none of us really know. But we also have the full slate of racers and their entire teams coming to the province. Even if it's just those folks. My extension of thought on that because this is strictly a tourism issue it absolutely will help the folks out at eastbound international speedway and concert park but when we have an opportunity for someone to come to the province and i'll, I'll pose this as a question if let's just pick a number if 20 percent of them enjoyed their time here and they don't have a lot of time to stay and have a further look around the province because they're in the middle of the race season what if they come back so that's sort of how tourism and word of mouth and when the, whether or not there was an enjoyable experience and they liked the facility, which is actually an excellent facility. I wonder how that factors into the decision. I'm sure that's how Destination St. John's looks at it. Who are, That's the entity that provided the numbers to the province. So I don't know if it's a good or bad spend, yeah. but I do think that it's possible to extend the conversation beyond $600,000 to talk about what it means and what it might mean long term. Yeah, I understand. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm just saying I don't understand how I had, you know, a thing that was towards related physical activity and, and year round towards attraction. But they said there was no funding for me because I was a private entity. Um, and uh, like a few years back, I, I operated a parasailing business out of St. Phillips, and there was no government funding for that. And I even called Department of Tours and Minister at the time uh, and said, uh, for the upcoming um, commercials, I said, is there any chance you can you know, put a two or three second clip of somebody parasailing? Because nobody across the country would connect parasailing uh, to Newfoundland because it's always considered a, a warmer climate uh, activity. And the reason I was given for no, we wouldn't be able to, is they said they, they try to have their commercials to be equal for services, uh, tourism services available right across the province. Uh, I mean, they show a lot of whales jumping. They show uh, people skiing and ziplining and stuff. Now, ziplining has only been new uh, past, I don't know, eight or ten years. But tourism, these commercials have always been showing like whales. Uh, for uh, It was great for whale watching uh, businesses, uh, which are across the province. But uh, I just couldn't understand why they wouldn't take something as unique for Newfoundland as a parachute. Somebody up, you know, four, four or five hundred feet up in a parachute, floating over Conception Bay, as being a um, a nice clip to show in a tourism video. Well, I, listen, I, I completely get that. Maybe add to it uh, someone on a surfboard, which actually happens here. A sea kayak ducking into a, a cave up the southern shore. You know, these types of things where we're talking about eco uh, eco tourism, but we're also talking about uh, activity tourism. So little snippets of something that people might not have associated with the province, there's no downside to it at all. Because we can fast flash uh, humpbacks jumping and puffins skimming the water and an iceberg floating by. You know, 
widen our widen our offering to folks who maybe have us pigeonholed where it's just a place to go see an iceberg even throw in the excitement of someone from new york state jigging a cod like whatever it is if it piques their interest they'll investigate that's all we need them to do we don't think that an ad is going to mean okay i have got to see that specific humpback i'm going to st vincent's but if you just pepper them with different things it might be absolutely something that catches their attention and like i suppose to the same minister i said look about the tours and commercials as beautiful as they look they're lovely i said you know yeah yes it looks nice but i said a lot of people across the country probably think that newfoundland don't have a hotel or don't have a, a piece of paved road um because i said every commercial is showing a rocky edge or uh, a gravel dusty road going to a woman hanging up clothes on a dusty on, a, on the end of a dusty road and i mean like and he said well the commercial have received many awards i said yes for cin- cinematography i understand that i said it looks beautiful i said but give people an image that we are we are in the 21st century and we do have paved paved roads we do have hotels and uh like i mean i had a um, i used to have a limousine business too and i remember having a, a lady in one time who won a trip here or something like that and she told me that she was shocked that we had a delta hotel she said, the only thing I know of Newfoundland is what I see in the commercials. And so I did not know you guys had a, ho- a Delta Hotel. Now, she might be totally out to lunch, uh, naive and, and, and uh, kind of uh, not aware of the east coast of Canada, but she was shocked at how beautiful our city was and, and what we had to offer based on only seeing the commercials. Well, look, and that level of, I'll use the word ignorance, not to be a total slur, but people think that this is the backwater. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty cosmopolitan city, in, you know, in the small scheme of things. It's not Manhattan. But, you know, people... Look, when I first moved to Alberta, people thought I was coming from the absolute center of the woods, right? You know, cable TV and what kind of housing. And, like, I was thinking to myself, really? You think that I live where? Yeah. I mean, I live in a modern city with everything that you had when you grew up in Moncton or, or in Portage La Prairie. So anyway, we, there is a misconception of what this province actually has to offer and who we are, uh, whether it be urban and or rural. Ross, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, something very quickly. Um, sure. The, um, the indoor park that I had action, uh, as most people would know now, is history. I mean, we did close. Uh, the building sold, the equipment got sold off and was purchased by the families that own Magic Mountain in New Brunswick and Sandspit in PEI. So speaking with the uh, family members when they were dismant- uh, dismantling the equipment here to put them aboard transport trucks and le- have them leave our beautiful province, um, they told me that uh, they actually get funding every year from the government uh, to operate their parks because they are a tourist draw. And it just made me feel sad that, you know, here I had such a beautiful, unique indoor facility, and these guys even admitted to. He said, he said, you had such a spot here, it's sad to see it go. And um, and the fact that, you know, they, these PEI New Brunswick are giving money every year to these uh, parks that are only uh, open during the summer months. Um, give them money for operation because he knows it's a tourist draw. I mean, you know, now we don't have those indoor amusement rides and, and, and attractions that Action used to have. So it, it's just you know, sad to see that sometimes money can go towards these, you know, a NASCAR race that's you know, a week long, three times a year, or sorry, three, uh, uh, once a year for three times, three years in a row, and I have something year-round. I mean, we employed 32 people. 
Uh, I mean, my, my payroll uh, was $22,000 biweekly to the, to the staff I had working there, and that's gone, right? Like, it's just, it's just sad. I appreciate the time, Ross, uh, and I know it was disappointing to uh, many of your clients or customers or patrons when you closed the doors, but I appreciate you making the call this morning. Thank you. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, there is always a concept of government picking winners and losers, you know? And I've been involved with entities that have applied for monies, and I'm not even sure we ever got any for anything. And that's just the way it goes. It's the paperwork and the bureaucratic nightmare or warfare to try to latch on, because we do see a lot of provincial uh, monies going out the door to a variety of things. And I know that the Pinty's uh, NASCAR races have drawn a lot of attention, and we're happy to talk about it, the upside, the downside, because, again, we don't have a, a scarcity of money. We have a problem with distribution. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking ground search and rescue. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Marv. You're on the air. Um, good morning, Patty. Thank you for uh, giving me some time this morning. No problem. I wanted to speak to um, the uh, recent uh, announcements with regard to funding for ground search and rescue um also wanted to say a little about the idea of conducting inquiries and also some of the i guess missing pieces that's left with regard to the overall <clears throat> search and rescue picture in this province and throughout the country for that matter uh, but you know having had um, a fair amount of uh, critique, I was going to say criticism, not that there's much difference, I suppose, on the search and rescue system. I'd certainly be remiss not to uh, jump into uh, the uh, fray when it comes to applauding what happened with the budget and with the allocation and, that is, and, and, and share that, uh, that great news. That is, that is excellent, excellent news, Patty. And the OCM has carried some really nice stories in the last couple of days on that, interviews with search and rescue participants. Harry Blackmore, of course, the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Search and Rescue Association. And they're obviously elated from what happened. And really, it's, it's really going to give uh, a lot of substance to... Uh, being able to enable uh, the ground search and rescue teams to, to have decent equipment um, and to have recruitment and to take care of uh, you know post-traumatic um, uh, stress issues, um, a lot of things will, will come will come with that money. And I know for the Labrador Coast where there's some serious missing pieces. I, I did some work during the inquiry for it and in a two of it council. I know that uh, President Todd Russell and his council is going to be um, really pleased to know that, uh, as Harry Blackmore had indicated on your show uh, yesterday in the interview, that there will be five new search and rescue teams in Labrador, some on the north coast, some on the on the, uh, the southern part of the coast. And so that, in fact, is, is great news, Patty. And, and, uh, sure. Well, you know, it, it, it's a start because the way Labrador has been abandoned by the federal government regarding search and rescue capacity is unbelievable. I mean, there's not even a fast, fast rescue craft up there. So more has to be done. Help me understand the numbers. So there was an announcement the week prior to the budget of a million dollars. At the end of last year, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred, or pardon me, three quarters of a million dollars. So what's the additional spend that's been put in place? The one million? 
Yeah, the one million, and I think in total now it's uh, one point eight or something. Yeah, one point eight since since the inquiry. There, there's always been an annual uh, core funding arrangement somewhere in excess of hundred thousand, not too much more. Uh, that's helped with the associations and so on, but primarily, you know, they've been running. Harry Blackmore and, and company has been running um, on you know fundraising, bottle drives, you name it. It's all been there, very very encumbering. And insurance, uh, you know, f- for their participants has been significant. So I think there's been some inroads there into into costing out and paying for for that kind of a thing. So. There's a lot of items, and Patty, I'm not sure about the uh, allocation in the budget, if that's considered to be an annual amount now. I don't know if you know or not, but uh, it would. I think the ask by the uh, uh, Search and Rescue Association was that it be an annual piece, especially in terms of having... Uh, you know, uh, train people in recruitment capacity and in other capacities give, to give professional help with regard to post-traumatic uh, stress, you know. And maybe this can help with the amount of turnover that they've experienced because of all the reasons that you point out. Because it's great that people are willing to step up the plate and fill the gaps, but then you still have the, the, the considerations of training and preparedness as opposed to the continuity mm-hmm. of a team staying together year over year, which makes them much more effective for all the obvious reasons. So this yeah. is news but i have not seen nor did i hear anybody say that this was a three five ten year commitment or permanent so that's something i guess we'll have to chase but that's what happens Mm. in the budget isn't it we'll see numbers but then they are followed weeks and months after by details yeah for sure but at least we've you know we've broken the crust on that and and I, I'm hoping it would be difficult uh, not to be able to rationalize uh, doing the same thing on an annual basis. It just makes so much sense. But uh, I just wanted to move a little bit on that inquiry because, you know, that response came fairly quickly after the inquiry and its recommendations came out. That was a good inquiry. I must, I must say I participated on several fronts with it. And Judge Gloriarty, I mean, was exceptional. I mean, what a great fit. Uh, uh, you know, with his experience uh, coming out of Labrador, I think that was that was amazing. But you know, um, inquiries is what it is. Some people would say, you know, why have an inquiry about an obvious issue? Why not, you know, proceed and address issues without having an inquiry? Well, I don't know. I, I really can't answer that question. All I know is that the results from inquiries are significant. That's why I'm a big supporter of it. I mean, this inquiry really, really drilled deep into the issues. They've done some exceptional analytics, and they put some really good rationale on the table and an argument, and you know, really that government in this province simply just could not, uh, just really could not uh, refuse. So I'm a big supporter of it. So in that sense, though, there's a lot of missing pieces. Uh, I mean, look, there's a federal component to search and rescue, as you know, as everyone knows. And the federal piece is major. I mean, this was a lot about provincial jurisdiction, or all about provincial jurisdiction. And when federal issues would creep in, uh, you know, there were a council, legal council there, by the federal, representing federal government, uh, federal search and rescue systems and so on, it would say, uh-uh, we're not going there. Uh, I know I tried to pull in some of the federal components with regard to the Burton Winters situation in Makovic. And ironically, uh, while this uh, inquiry achieved 
a great level of success on the funding front. Uh, they still did not get to the core of what happened uh, on, on that front. And I don't want to go there too much because I don't want to dredge this up for the families that have been through enough. But, uh, you know, the issues of serious, serious shortfalls in federal resources uh, and, in, and with the, the coordination of, of, of that particular case, uh, have not even, they haven't even scratched the surface of solving that. Uh, the issue of, uh, you know, all the accidents, for example, in the fishing industry, uh, over 70% of search and rescue cases in this province is related to fishing vessel incidents and, and fatalities. Uh, there's, there's a big issue there. So that part is uh, seriously, seriously missing. I don't know when we're going to get to doing it, but uh, the purpose of inquiries, what it can achieve, you know, we go back to um, one of the inquiries that stands out, Patty, is, you know, the Ocean Ranger inquiry. Someone say, well, we haven't implemented all the recommendations. But I'm telling you, it really set the stage and set the bar for where we need to go on safety in the offshore. So it served yeah. that significant purpose, you know? Well, uh, one of the key recommendations was a 24-7 search and rescue base in St. John's. No, mm-hmm. hasn't happened. Merv, uh, good to have you on the show. appreciate your time. So much more to talk about, Petty. Thank you for this much. Anytime. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, we'll get Sean quick with his bouquet before we go. I'm not sure what this is about, but uh, good morning, Sean, on line number four. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. <laughs> Uh, Patty, uh, it's been a rough week for our family since my father. Oh, Mr. Callahan. Yeah, I'm really sorry for your loss, Sean. Thank you very much, Patty. And I want to extend a huge thank you on behalf of my brother Brian, of course, one of your journalists there in your newsroom uh, and everywhere else, uh, and all your staff. And and going back to Mr. Steele's passing this year, I mean, these are are iconic individuals who have done so much for this province, and I know I'm a little bit biased, but... You know, when I look back and I listen to your ads this morning, uh, waiting for your program or during your program, as you opened up the callers uh, to, to your callers, uh, talking about the tourism industry here. I mean, I just have to make this mention that you know, be, uh, before uh, before Gross Morn and that entire highway and everything that's in it uh, was put in place and opened up, I mean, we really didn't have a tourism industry here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, you know, some people came here, they went fishing, but, you know, it had to be, you had to be a pretty affluent individual to, to make a trip just to go fishing up on the Labrador or in different parts of the province. We weren't really set up for, for a tourism sector like that. You still do have to be pretty affluent for that particular trip. And you really do, no question. But, you know, today, like at least there's, Air, or there's Airbnbs and there's B&Bs everywhere. And, you know, like, sure, you're absolutely right. But, like, we're not exactly, you know, closely attached to the U.S. and Europe. I mean, we still got to make that trip and, and, and a big commitment uh, to come here. So we've opened it up, and it's, it, it's been a, a wonderful ride so far. And I think the government said by 2025 we'll be doing $2 billion in tourism. Well, we need more rent-a-cars to do that. But um, I like, like that's, that's one of uh, Dad's uh, biggest accomplishments. I mean, it took a lot to get that here and get it all done. But, you know, we saved the Northern Peninsula from... From, from probably major troubles because of the uh, downgrading in the fishery, but that's but that's across the province now. I mean, we can't open up a a, a magazine in the world without seeing our centerfold with that couple standing above uh, uh, the fjord there at Western Brook Pond, uh, like like on the Grossmore Mountain. I mean, who doesn't want to be there with that in, in that very same space? So I want to reach out to to so many people. I mean, our lieutenant governor came to the funeral, dead and and. Uh, and her honor were, were best of friends. They were closely together in, in, in many capacities. 
as a premier lowering the flag to the province at half mass. I mean, that was a terrific honor for dad. But he never, ever looked for honors. He was always giving, and he was always charitable in any way he could and very very humble. And that's the way he was. And, and of course, afterwards, we hear so many people call, so, so many things, people calling me up and calling all of our family and my mother, all of us up, and sending us messages about things that he did and the things that he did that, that, that nobody knew about. He just did it for that person or for that group or, you know, whoever needed it. And I think that's a that's a legacy and his love for his family and uh, and everything about this province. I mean, Dad loved this province and anything he could do to make it better for all of us, he would do that without anyone really observing that it was him doing it. He he just wanted it done and, and just went at it. So if there's ever a uh, you know a suggestion I have to everybody out there, I mean, the more positive thoughts we can have about our future here in Newfoundland, Labrador, the better. We've had some great announcements over the last couple of weeks to help shore up that. And I congratulate the government and the province and, and our national government, uh, Seamus Regan and many, many others, for uh, for getting on board with that. And uh, and I see a bright future for us, Patty, and for your children and mine. And that's what it's all about, a very healthy you know, economy, a, a healthy population with the health accord we're doing. I mean, all these things are monumental tasks, but they must be done. A lot of them are long overdue. So I want to reach out and say thank you to your station to all your people who've had such such wonderful things to say in the past week, and to uh, anyone who's reached out to our family. Uh, it's, it's so appreciated. And uh, we're, we're going to miss my father. He was a real mover and shaker in this province, and, uh, especially in the news media, especially in his positions as publisher of the Daily News in those days. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the Telegram, the Western Star over the years, CJON, TV and radio, and all the things. I mean, broadcasting the very first hockey game live from Memorial Stadium. I mean, they, they still play it on a little good news on NTV once in a while. And it stops me right in my tracks when I see it. Yeah. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting your father on a couple of occasions. But he has been on the show. And your mother's been on the show, as a matter of fact, yes. as well. And I remember that conversation quite well. It was about seniors and Internet usage, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Sean, uh, our deepest condolences. You know, your father, a storied career, to say the very least, from a member of Joey Smallwood's cabinet, right through his work in journalism, which has been critically important. So uh, our condolences. We're sorry for your loss. Uh, and the provinces has, has suffered a loss here with the death of your father, Bill. I appreciate your time. I wish you and your family nothing but the best as you get through the short term, the long term grief is real but it's the short term where you really need everyone to lean on especially inside the family and your close social circle so we wish you the very best and we sure do and thank you to you patrick for your kind comments take good care sean bye-bye bill callahan that's a big loss uh let's go ahead and take a break don't go away yeah welcome back to the show let's go to line number five jason you're on the air hey patty how are you today my buddy great today how about you uh best time good uh just want to call in and express my uh, views on, on uh, some of the roads throughout the province and stuff, and uh, some maintenance and uh, lack thereof. Um, particularly, I want to speak about Route 81, which uh, runs between Markland, actually Whitburn, and Colonnette. Yeah. It's south. Um, it's a gravel section is what I'm interested in because I live in that area. It's... Uh, it's kind of between, I guess, Markland and Colonnette, where I am, and uh, we got like a dozen families or so that live there full year, all year round, full time. And uh, well, this seems seems to be a, an ongoing thing every year. Uh, our road condition, and 
uh, I'll be honest with you, I travel the province, I've been all over, I travel all the different roads and stuff, but uh, I got to say, I have never seen anything as uh, as bad as what the gravel section of this road is. Now, we did get some pavement last year and the year before in, in the community of Markland and stuff, and kudos to them for doing it, but uh, where we're living is, is under a different uh, jurisdiction, it's under the St. Joseph's uh, region. And we're at the extent, at the very end of it, I guess you could say, or for quite a distance from that depot. And uh, the roads, it's it's totally neglected. And uh, it was a class two road, gravel road is what they were. And I found it recently, it's actually lower than that. It's a class three road, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I'm pretty sure they said it's required to be graded two times a year. Now, Patty, the road that I'm living on in there, uh, I, I got to say for 2022, it's uh, it's probably the worst I've ever seen, and I've had I've had some news. Uh, I had media in there. We've had some protests over the last few years. Um, we had some great showing of people, you know, coming in and help support to get this road upgraded, and and just to get it maintained on a regular basis. But I'm telling you, like I live there myself, my wife, we both commute back and forth to St. John's uh, pretty much on a daily basis, and. Uh, we have to have a you know a half decent vehicle for traveling, and it, it just can't hold up. Like I don't know what needs to be done. Like the, these protests we got to do, we we got to scratch and claw and fight. I understand the provinces. Uh, we're in a hard state. We're actually I think we're close to being in, you know in shambles. But uh, I, I just can't get my head around the lack of maintenance and, and uh, or no maintenance. Like this is a, this is a route that people use. To travel back and forth, you know, to Whitburn. Whitburn is the hub for the local area, and uh, like, it's ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. That that stretch of road has been beat forever. Yeah, Patty, I got I've been traveling the road for forty years. I grew up in Whitburn, and I spent the majority of my life in Markland. And uh, I'm not sure what your, you know your background is for our experience traveling over there, but. That road is—it's it, not fit to drive over in an ATV. Yeah, I've been on it many times. I had family in Whitburn and yeah. buddies with cabins in Colnett, so I've been in and out to Markham Road. I mean, certainly not to the extent that you have over 40 years, but I absolutely have beat up my rig on that road. It's not fit. Look, uh, and every time we call to the depot, or I've even—I've spoken to the last uh, couple of uh, transportation ministers. Uh, that have been in, in there, and you get the same run around. Like, we've had the road has been washed out. You could not pass over the road in a car. Like, it's ridiculous. And the best they can do is come put a pylon in a hole. There's not enough pylons made that you can put in there. Like, you cannot go over that road in a vehicle. Like, sensibly, the car, it'll scrub on the bottom. And it's not because it's uh, spring of the year or spring thaw. That's, that's one of the excuses. We never even had any frost. The road is, it can't be, it don't even be graded. Two weeks ago, they put a grader on the road. They went from the pavement and colonnade. They stopped like two kilometers short where, where I live, which is pretty much at the halfway point between uh, uh, colonnade and Markland, and took the grader off the road. Like, I don't know what got to happen. I really don't. Like, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And, and you know, like, and, and it don't matter what party is in power. It don't matter if you're red, blue, green, orange, or as you say, whatever your stripe is. It seems to make no difference. Like, we had a gentleman on there who was 90 years old, interviewed. He's been uh, almost 70 years writing letters, and this is an educated man. Still, the same thing. Like, he can go back 70 years almost of, of fighting and scratching and clawing, and here we are, like, 
Isn't that fit to go over it with a, a, a bike or a horse and cart? It's, it's absolutely, it's totally embarrassing. It really is. And before people come on and talk about <clears throat> paying taxes and this and that and regionalization and all this, and they, they get to do something with the road. Like, and, and I know these people like, that are in position to do this and make the decisions. I know they listen, and I know that they're hearing it. But, like, what could have happened? Like, my, my goodness, like, we worked full-time, and, and the ones that are in there retired, they worked full-time, they paid their taxes. To me, you know, I'll compare it to this. Go to a gas station, fill up your vehicle, and you come out and you realize they sold you water instead of gas. Well, you can go back in and you can get your money back for doing that and pay for the charges that it costs to uh, fix your vehicle. But we're paying for a service. We're not getting anything. And, and, and we're dearly paying. And, and still, 2022, Patty, I'm telling you, my buddy, come home here. Uh, it's shocking to say, but I, I'd rather put up a sign and say, stay away here. There's nothing here for anyone to drive on. Rental vehicles, it's not fit. Yeah, they'd have to take the long way around if they're trying to not beat up the rental and or their own personal vehicle. Jason, they're flagging me out to the news. I'm late for the newscast, but I appreciate your time and your concerns this morning. Yes, Patty, I appreciate you taking my call, and uh, have a good day. And hopefully we get something out of this, and uh, possibly I, I expect you'll see the news media in there again this week. I got a phone full of pictures and videos, and anyway, I hopefully I hope that they pay attention and they finally do something. Just, like, fix the road, that's all. We're not looking for pavement. We just want to grade it. That's not too much to ask. Thanks a lot, Jason. You're welcome. Take Bye. good care. Bye-bye. All right, time for the news. When we come back, Rothschild Report, Seniors Housing, NASCAR. Then you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Noreen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks. How about you? I'm good. Thanks for taking my call. Just uh, not the reason I called, but just a little mention in your preamble. Uh, you talked about uh, children in school. I'm a, a mother, a grandmother. I have grandchildren in school in this province, also in the province of Ontario. And I'm thinking through this pandemic, if any educator thinks that a child can just pick up, sweep on into the next grade level, um, we're going to have lots of issues. <laughs> the school district will reply like this. They'll say, you know, while we have you in the K-12 system, we can accommodate some of the curriculum that maybe it didn't absorb in the year prior. That's a lot to say, but we also have to recognize that every child is different and their ability to learn at home or to thrive while they isolate or to deal with the issues over the last few years. It's also vastly different that I think we're, I don't think we fully grasped what's happening in the schools over the last couple of years. And then you talk about the preparation to move from grade three to four, from six to seven, from nine to 10, from 12 to post-secondary. And like Mon says, they understand that there'll be a different level of preparation, but that doesn't mean that the global competitiveness for a job has uh, backed off. So I think we got to talk more about this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like I said, having children come up to the education system, I, my motto is always remember one size doesn't fit all. Never does. Anyway, not the reason I called. I feel sad because the only reason I ever get to talk to you basically is, is around the same issue, and that's the lack of seniors housing in Labrador West. The last couple, the last week or two, I guess I've been overwhelmed with calls, text messages, and I think that came from, uh, you know, with the opening of the two new long-term care homes in central Newfoundland, and kudos to them. Wonderful. You know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from the island myself, been here many years, but uh, I think this prompt a lot of 
calls from many, many of seniors. And, you know, I'm knee-deep in seniors' issues. I serve on many, many committees, many boards, and, and I hear it every day. And I have grave concerns. And just this past couple of weeks, one of the groups that I serve on, the Labrador West Pioneer Living Group, we had to finally, after I think it was our 54th meeting, put out a, uh, an announcement that, you know, we, we just had to stop. We, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're a group of seven or eight seniors who's been at this for years, trying to advocate, trying to get developers on board, trying to get government on board, and we're just hitting brick walls. It's just not happening. And I have grave concerns for my seniors in this area. And myself, I'm a senior myself. And anyone in this area that have a spouse, uh, uh, grandparents, you know, should have the same concerns. Absolutely. You know, and you mentioned the two long-term care facilities in Central. Unfortunately, those two 60-bed units were plagued with problems and the delayed opening and what that's meant for people paying a fee to remain in hospital while they wait for placement in those homes is really un- it's extraordinary. Mm. Then you go to the fact that, like in Lab West, there is no retirement home. No long-term care home. I read a story which I'll refer to as uh, proactive, but also cute. Students at the J.R. Smallwood Middle School, I think it's called in Wabush, putting forward a proposal for seniors housing in Western Labrador because one of their children saw their loved one pass away, their grandmother or grandfather pass away in the hospital and never get a chance to be admitted to the home. I'm like, how have we arrived at a place where kids in grade five are putting forward solutions for seniors housing in Western Labrador? I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they selected an area known as uh, Tanya Lake, I think, for 30 beds. But... That all sounds great and go down the children for understanding what's going on in their community and realizing that their grandparents and their parents are facing these types of issues. But for a region of the province to have zero retirement homes, zero long-term care facilities is staggering in 2022. Yeah, and not only that, there's no type of seniors cottage living. There's, there's absolutely no type. You can't buy a home care worker. You know, I, I, I feel uh, a bit resentful and I feel a bit anxious because I'm scared that one of these days is going to coming to finding some of our seniors you know with fatalities they're living in large homes that really they shouldn't be there they have no assisted living because there's none to get so I have grave concerns around their living arrangements like it, it's very scary when you go in and visit with some of those or you talk to some of those over the phone when my phone call is probably the only phone call or the only voice that they've heard for a week or more like I'm really concerned and I don't understand why uh, other besides me outside of here that can be part of the process are not hearing this and you know like I said there's nobody in one of the government offices in the Confederation building connected with housing seniors or development that don't know how to reach me and how to reach out yeah, and then, you know, just uh, an additional layer to that is when we talk about housing and downsizing and affordable housing, it does indeed include what affordable housing looks like for seniors because some of the different types of uh, equipments and accessibility issues they need addressed inside a home is different for maybe other types of affordable living. So when we throw it out there as a catch-all, we maybe miss the point that we're talking about singles versus families versus people with mental health issues and or seniors and or disabilities. So, you know, when we 
we have that conversation, we got to break it down into the different needs. Yeah, and I have to do kudos, you know, to Newfoundland Labrador Housing, something we've been advocating for years. We had many, many of our units that were closed up over the down, the downswing of the mining company. And uh, to date, uh, all of our apartments that, you know, were livable have all been repaired. And now we have a contractor on site doing all a major repair of the outside of the buildings and the homes. I'm going to allude also to, I'm sure you have heard and followed, you know, Angela Hardy's uh, advocacy for her mom. Yep. And, you know, what I want to say to my people in Labrador West is we are all Cheryl Hardys. Every single one of us is going to get old. Every single one of us is going to age. Every single one of us want to age in place. But if that's going to happen, we're going to have to get on the bandwagon. Does that mean, heaven forbid, bringing out a group of poor senior citizens, 70 and 80 years old, to do a rally? Like like, like the man before me on my call said, you know, do we have to scratch and ball? Like, what is it going to take that somebody is going to listen and pick up on this? It's, uh, I think that was rally cry of Angela's stories that were all Cheryl Hardy. Uh, I, let me throw this out there as an idea because, you know, in Labrador, Lab West, we've seen a lot of boom and bust, right? It's mm -hmm. just the nature of the beast when we talk about the type of industrial jobs uh, and opportunities there. I've often wondered, inside a benefits agreement, if we didn't always necessarily start with jobs, but we started with amenities and infrastructure. Just imagine had they built a seniors complex as part of their approval to expand a mine. Just imagine if they'd built some seniors affordable housing uh, for their application for a mine. And, you know, even if there was a bit of give and take there on the jobs fronts, on the royalties fronts, we get something that's everlasting and uh, that's required today and we wouldn't have to foot the bill, you know? And, and, uh, and what a great legacy that would be for the 100%. mining company, for the pioneers that built where they are today. <laughs> yeah, 100%. You know, we always look at uh, benefits agreements straight up with royalties and jobs when, in fact, some of that long-lasting infrastructure that could be used for generations or or one or two generations just sounds like a good way to get someone else to foot the bill. Absolutely. And, you know, the word always back from, uh, you know, government officials is, you know, well, you need a developer. Well, we were lucky enough to have a young man come on who was willing to be the developer. But there's no single developer can develop this on their own. Like, we, we need the uptake of others. You need Barney like, Powers. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just not going. Yeah, yeah. It's just not going to happen, right? You know, we we have to have the the political will to do it, and we have to have the input from uh, from other sources of funding. And uh, we applied for several sources of funding. So now you just picture this: you're talking a group of seven seniors who the youngest may be 65 years old around the table, trying to do applications, do pro big proposals. When we formed our group, we didn't even have enough funds for to get incorporated. We had to go out to organisations to. Look Look for funding to do that piece. Yeah. Noreen, I appreciate the update and the conversation as usual. Perfect, Patty. Maybe someday the conversation may be able to be different, and I certainly hope so. I look forward to it. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. It's Noreen Kareen, of course, great advocate up in Lab West. Let's take a break. Kevin's right there. Appreciate his patience. He wants to talk about the Rothschild Report. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. A couple of quick ones. So we saw the pictures of the polar bear on top of the house in St. Anthony the other day, which is something else. Now there's apparently another couple of polar bears in the community around the Pettyville area of town, just to the entrance of the fishing point. So a mother and a cub. So that's two more polar bears in St. Anthony. So watch your bobber if you're in that community today. Also, there's uh, a lady who's 
reporting that there's a massive, what do you know, a massive pothole on the Trans-Canada just before Birchie Narrows. I'm not sure what direction they're travelling, but there's two orange cones stuck in it to make you aware of it, but no signage prior to arriving on top of the pothole. So maybe the department can go put a sign wherever that, I don't know if it's east or west, but anyway, watch it in that area. Let's go to line number two. Kevin, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, fantastic. I'll get better, though. Good. Hey, boy. Uh, we were talking a little while ago about the report, the Ratchall report. You and I, about a month or more ago now. But uh, it came to fruitation, what we were talking about. Uh, I was just wondering, though, Patty, who owns all these assets? Uh, I mean, I know that's a trick question. Uh, we own it, but the government manages them. Uh, they're only managers, yes. Okay. Now, who pays for it all? Well, it depends. I mean, everything is created differently. Bull Arm, by and large, is paid for by the folks that will go in and operate, you know, whether it be the DF Barons of the world or what have you. We fund a lot of the operations at Motor Vehicle with paying for our re-registrations and licenses and other fees at MV. Uh, at the NLC, I guess we all chip in with our spending on all of the beers and wines and spirits in, inside the door. So it depends on what we're talking about. Well, we're talking about all the assets that are in the report. Yeah, but they're not all the same, right? That, that's my point there is that privatization requires a case-by-case analysis and debate because privatizing the NLC is not the same as privatizing Marble Mountain. Oh, without, without a doubt, and I agree, but uh, to the fact, the people of the province own Bull Arm. I mean, D.F. Barnes and them, they go in there and they lease it or rent it or whatever the case They operate it, yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's the people of the province own it. Okay, so uh, when we get down to it, brief. So now, who pays for the report? We did. We did. So right now, it's all of us. And uh, why can't we see that? Why can't we? And and forget the commercial sensitivity. That's only a, a, a string of beans. A row of moose buttons. But now there might be some parts of that report that we'd like to shield from the potential bidders. I understand that. We don't want to all of a sudden put ourselves in a predicament or a spot where they know more than they need to know as they do their own due diligence. So I understand pulling some of that back, but I'd like for Michael Harvey to make those decisions, not the cabinet. Because, you know, and it even extends beyond that. Minister Cody says with the portions that are commercially sensitive, they won't be revealed publicly. Uh, But then she also goes on to say the parts the report that aren't commercially sensitive, they won't be revealed either. So where do we go from here? Is it just, just trust me, I'm the government, I'm here to help? Or is it going to be a debate on the House of Assembly? If I'm a member of the opposition parties uh, or an independent member, what am I supposed to ask? I don't even know what the, what the report says. So exactly. well, it's see, just and, something and else. Yeah, therein is the beginning of the problem because the people of the province paid for it, and no matter what, each individual in that house, be it PC, NDP, independent, or whatever, represent the people of the province and their districts, and they have a right to that report the same as anybody else on the other side. But uh, there, it's politics again, of course. But as far as the assets and and the commercial sensitivity, Patty, I mean, uh, that's all fluid. You know, that that moves like an asset today might be worth ten times more tomorrow. You look at that, come by chance out there now to pay in orders on the go. That that improves the assets liability out there. Unfortunately, it doesn't. It doesn't. No. I don't know. We're we're not we're not 
strictly right into this right no, now. No, but we know enough about it to know that come by chance uh, its profitability or its value doesn't change with Beta Nord because it's not going to be refining crude oil anymore. It's going to be doing biofuels and biofuels only, whether that be biofuel developed diesel and or aviation fuel. So it's not even going to take uh, crude for any sort of refining. So that doesn't have any impact to come by chance. And someone asked me via email as to why the five cents in particular that goes to Silver Peak is still in play now that come by chance is up and running. But the argument that the companies will make or the government will make or the PUB will make is that that five cents has nothing to do with current operations that come by chance because that additional five cents, and it must be nice to be that company, is for the importation and distribution of distillates, uh, diesels, oils, and propane. So it's it's got nothing to do with come by chance's current operations once again. So now we're funding again through the back door. We're funding another private entity by that five cents. Well, and it's, and it's not only Silver Peak either, so... Oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> but there, there's the problem, Patty. I mean, the assets are always fluid, too, some of them. So, Siobhan Cody has no right to withhold the report from the people of this province. We own it. We own the assets. And as far as the rest of the report, she can redact, uh, okay, well, they figure this is work, whatever, but we should certainly know what assets we have, what assets we own, where they're located, and just the total value of all these assets. So we're not defining specific value on each one, but at least the people of the province know what assets we got and what they're worth, because if government turns around and sells this, how can we hold them accountable? We don't even know what it's worth. Yeah, but again, like it, it's going to evaluate the uh, oil oil equity stake that we have out there. I suppose it's not fundamental because we're talking massive numbers as to what it's actually worth, but there's lots of moving parts there based on negotiation with the operators and, and what liabilities look like at the end, all of those things. So I know that this is not fundamental cocktail cocktail napkin math that's being done here. No. But even to understand the recommendations, if the report says privatize NLC, privatize Marble Mountain, privatize Bull Arm, privatize motor vehicle, it'd be nice to know exactly what the starting point of conversation is because when government hires consultants, it's not only that some consultant might bring some expertise to the table, even though there's still a debate on that front. It's also provides some political cover. So if and when they say we're going to privatize the NLC based on expert recommendations from Rothschild and Co., when we don't have any of the fundamentals of here's what it means for flow of revenue to the, the provincial coffers versus what it costs to operate versus real estate costs and uh, workers' compensation and the remuneration packages and the long-term benefits. Until we see what it all includes, how can we even know if we're on the right track? And, and how can we even trust them when they're not sharing the information by duly elected officials from all these communities that are there and have a right to access this report in their constituents' name, and they're not even sharing it with them? So how can we trust them? What are you hiding? Well, I, I don't know what they're hiding, but they get off on the wrong foot here. You know, it's too late for all of us if all of a sudden, and I'm not in the world of conspiracy theories and always looking for the worst or just perpetually cynical, but... If it all of a sudden means that when one of these things that can be valuable and profitable is privatized and someone from Rothschild and or their clients are first in the pecking order, 
they have created a political storm that they'll be hard to weather. So it's it's in their best interest to figure this out and get the Privacy Commissioner on board right away before we have to put in a tip request and then appeals to the Privacy Commissioner to see if we can have a glance at this stuff and have a look behind the covers. Then they're setting themselves up here as far as I can tell. But anyway, did you want to say something about NASCAR before I have to go? Yes, I did so, Patty. Thanks for the time there. Now I know you're really close. Uh, here's Chalky 2 now out with the big smile on the face. He's going to be able to sit in a NASCAR. Why? 600 grand for the privilege. And here's that poor lady on here a second ago looking for help for seniors up in Lab West. Where's that? What was in the budget for the seniors? Why? And you can afford to throw $600,000 out the window for sports and entertainment. It's absolutely ridiculous, my son. And then they went over a budget because Baden Nord comes on. Isn't that the history of our government? What do you mean over budget and Baden Nord? What's the relationship? No, no, there? no. When when Baden Nord come in, they went over and above what they were going to spend this year. Yeah, well, I mean, the budget was crafted before the decision was made. Had to be. Oh, oh, well, Patty, you don't think them fellas now didn't know? Oh, there's lots of back and forths. Yeah, there's lots of back-channeling on the go. But there's no way to rejig an entire budget, even if we're talking about 30 days. It simply cannot be done. Oh, no, but uh, it's strange for the two budgets to come out on one day, too. But uh, anyway, Patty, my friend, thank you so very much. You guys be safe. Thank you, David. Take care. All the best, Kevin. Right on. Bye-bye. It, again, I've been in this chair a long time, and some things that I think are just whopping big issues that really require lots of public discourse, sometimes it gets very little. And then you have things like whether or not there was the possibility to have a beer at the movie theater. Boom, look out, the NASCAR race. Oh, my goodness. So you just rarely, really never know what's going to catch fire. But whatever you want to talk about, we can do it right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Tom Badcock. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning? Doing okay, Tom. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Good. Brandy, uh, uh, I was Brandy. <laughs> Patty, I was calling. Uh, I was listening yesterday to your program about the uh, the people and the cost of food and uh, people trying to uh, to make ends meet, see, eat nutritionally and things. And uh, I remembered uh, about three years ago, uh, we have a group of people, as I'm sure you do, that work for dinner a lot to restaurants and things like that. Uh, and particularly during the COVID time, we said, look, these people are really uh, hurting. So uh, we used to make it uh, a habit to once a week go to a different restaurant. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, what we came up with was this this deal where we could uh, have a, a dinner party at home. And the goal was to see who could provide uh, the least cost meal between the three couples. And we made up this ranking system where 50% of the points would go to uh, the cost, whoever had the lowest cost, and it was the flavor, the taste, the presentation and things. And after all was said and done, the the winner uh, of the of the meal, of the little contest we had, uh, came in at a little under $19. And for, to, menu, to feed how many people per plate? Six, six, six people. Six people for $19. Yeah. What was and it, KD had, all around? What, that, <laughs> what the person served was mussels for the appetizer. Okay. Now, as you know, mussels are, you get mussels for about a buck a pound. 
Uh, they had mac and cheese for the entree, and they deserved ice cream for the dessert. Uh, and I can tell you, for the other couples, I don't think anybody amongst the three couples went over 30 bucks. And we had some great meals. Yeah, uh, you, it can absolutely be done. The trick would be when you try to uh, deal with a menu that might include uh, some meats. Because just, yeah. just to give people a, a quick idea, price increases over the last year. Meats, fishes, yeah. and eggs, almost 14%. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, th when you try yeah. to use one of those products, you're absolutely moving into a price bracket, which is becoming very difficult for a lot of folks. Add in fruits. Boy, oh, boy, if you're trying to have some fruit in the house, that's a real problem. And then, of course, the the impact of diesel, which is up, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood right. of 45 percent, gasoline up around 48 percent. That's right. how it all trickles yeah. into this menu creation. That's right. We, we've all had to make adjustments. Like We used to always have prime rib. Every Friday night, we had prime rib. We haven't had prime rib now for a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, because it's so bloody expensive. But most of the meals that I, like here at the Hub, of course, we, we are always trying to help people out with their low-cost meals and things. And for a period of time, a few years ago, we were providing menu selections for people. And today at home, uh, with my wife and I and, and my son, the average cost of our meals throughout the week is about five, six bucks. Uh, like last night, I had a pasta dish uh, with a bottle of a dollar ninety-seven Alfredo sauce from Walmart. I love soups. Uh, you go to the store and you buy uh, uh, a, a turkey necks. You can get a great big tray of turkey necks for five bucks, and you can make a great big pot of soup for six, seven bucks. Stews. Uh, you know, spaghettis, all of the things that you don't have to put meat in with spaghetti to have a real flavorful spaghetti, just use spices and things. Uh, so that's what we've been doing, not because we're in a position where we have to do that, but I've always been able to cook low-cost meals throughout the week. And, yeah, on the weekend when we have a steak, it's more expensive. When we have Jig's dinner on Sundays with all the trimmings, it's, it's certainly more expensive. But there's lots of choices out there, like baked beans, for example, which, you know, a Newfoundland standard. A bag of beans is a couple of bucks, a bit of molasses and a bit of pork, and you have a wonderful meal with a loaf of bread for five, six bucks and feed a lot of people. Uh, so, you know, the, the point of my call is, yeah, we've all had to make adjustments and stay away from, from, from beef in particular, which is really expensive, but pork and chicken are still really reasonable. Uh, and there's so many alternatives to things that you can do with them uh, to keep the costs down. Uh, and like I said, we fed six people for um, for under 20 bucks, and it was a good meal. You know, mac and cheese is a great meal. I know, you know, uh, cheese is of course a little bit more expensive now, but still, you know, you can you can have a good meal for a family of four for 10 bucks if you're creative. Uh, and that's what that's what we're doing now. Is, uh, and people I know are doing the same thing, and we're telling our members. At the hub, but I hear some menu selections. Try that, and uh, you know, to try and until we get over this thing, if we ever do. I've been trying to be a little bit more cautious. Uh, I'm pretty much the cook at home, especially on weekdays, which I'm actually enjoying. And I've been a bit more attentive to the flyers, and I've been trying to find a way for uh, a, a reasonable, nutritious, healthy filling meal, because I've got two strapping young fellas at home that are eating me out of house and home, but that's another conversation. Um, so yeah, I, you know, maybe what has 
kind of seeped into our brains is that we've convinced ourselves that to eat healthier uh, requires so much more money. We've convinced ourselves that we can't afford stuff because we're unwilling to change the actual ingredients we incorporate in our spaghetti or whatever the case may be or our starting point for a soup which once was for me a turkey soup was turkey on Sunday boil the carcass strip her down make turkey soup which of course ends up costing me 50 or 60 bucks versus what would be turkey next go up to Breen's get a half pound of white and make my stock from that exactly like you can go you can go to not to name restaurants but you can go to Sobeys and you can buy a box of turkey wings now there's only three or four in a box but they're huge and one turkey wing will make a pot of soup uh, you know, or break it apart and put it in the oven for a while, and you got a, you got a great meal. I, I buy them all the time. I think they're twelve ninety seven a box. Where do you buy turkey uh, necks? We love them. Where are you getting the turkey necks? Uh, the turkey necks got them at Sobeys. Okay. Uh, and they're about five bucks, and they're huge. They're, you know, the turkeys must be fifty pound turkeys, so the necks are as big as your arm. And they cut them up in pieces, and they're fantastic in soup. And as you know, a pot of soup will last you three or four days. It sure can. I saw someone post a picture of a package of two crab legs, $111 (laughs) for two crab legs. I went to, I say we were prime rib, we went to Costco a couple of of weeks ago, and my wife said, let's have prime rib for supper. I said, sure. And I passed her two two steaks for $72. (laughs) Yeah. So I said, no, 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 not, no, no, not buying that. It's not worth that to me. I don't think I'll be able to digest it. So, uh, you know, it's, but again, we make adjustments at home. We eat a lot of pasta. Uh, We had pasta last night. We had a cold pasta salad last night. We had pasta the night before. We have, you know, uh, breakfast breakfast sausage. I do all the cooking at home. Breakfast sausage and some fried potatoes. Uh, you know, and even with a seven-year-old who's picky, he'll eat those kind of things. He loves pastas and, and much much less expensive than a pasta. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with a bit of sauce, you know, and, and then, again, I, I'm rambling again now, but uh, That's okay. you can. You can have a meal. You can have a meal for five, six bucks. If you're a bit creative, so yeah, we we actually I don't know why all of a sudden people know my menu every supper time, but uh, last night we had what has long been referred to as crazy supper. That's what the boys call it when they were small, which is simply breakfast for supper. You know, yeah. some breakfast yeah. items. Uh, Tom, appreciate the time as usual. Yeah. Thanks for this. Thank you for listening. Have a good day. You too, Tom. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's try to stay on cue here and on time with the breaks. So when we come back. Linda wants to talk about something I said, and we'll find out what that is right after the break. But also, there was uh, some conversation, the questions being asked by PC member uh, Helen Conway-Ottenheimer regarding the fact that the province's domestic violence strategy sort of lapsed in 2019. The minister responsible, Pat Parsons, says it's a living document, not a physical document, but we know that the issue of domestic violence, gender-based violence, is very, very real, unfortunately, in this province. So Pam wants to talk about that after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Linda, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, I just want to uh, mention something uh, to make reference to the travel that you mentioned this morning. I agree that I think uh, whoever has been vaccinated now are are definitely uh, not, they are vaccinated. The ones who are not, uh, are not going to be. And uh, I I think it's a little bit unfair that uh, they're still punishing the travelers, especially with our come home year happening here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, I, I think it's certainly unfair that they have uh, no option 
to get home and enjoy our beautiful province. And it doesn't seem like anybody uh, in our government here in Newfoundland is, is uh paying any attention to that. Well, they do have options. They can always come across on Marine Atlantic uh, if we're going to be concise on the issue. And who knows what the conversation looks like behind closed doors, whether we talk about vaccine mandates for uh, air travel or Baden Ord or all these things, which, you know, I get it. We're not going to be privy to every word uttered between any member of the provincial government and counterparts federally. But I don't know what it is. I mean, I do know that there's a sunset clause associated with all these mandates. And at some point, it's just going to come to a natural end. When that's going to be, I really don't know. But government is in a funny spot here. The vaccine mm-hmm. mandates have worked, uh, depending on what your definition of worked is. And when we know that there's monies required and requests by airport authorities and airlines, now we're talking about the slim minority of Canadians who are subjected to the inability to travel via air, but it all adds up after a while. So I don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it's time for a rational conversation on that front, when unfortunately, a lot of the conversation in some from some corners in the recent past has been completely irrational. Yes, I agree with that, Patty, and yes, it is time. Uh, but I, I want to uh, um, read something that Dr. Tam now, when we talk about science, I think Dr. Tam is our uh, main person who we, we kind of listen to on the, on the side of science. So we have been, anyway. And on March 9th, uh, 18th, March 18th, Dr. Teresa Tam said that uh, the federal government, um, the Treasury Board, is actively examining all of their policies right now. She suggested that they were going to uh, lift some of them. And uh, she said, referring to the branch of government that is uh, nominally the employer for federal civil servants. Now, she um, went on to say that um, uh, she talked about the travel and she talked about the different things. But uh, then at the, uh, at the very end, she went on to say that it becomes complicated to work out. Now, I quote, this is what Dr. Tan said. It becomes very um, complicated to work out, Tam said. All of this has to be borne in mind when the government makes its policy decisions. You also have to make it relatively simple for the travelers. Now, that's a quote from Dr. Tam on March 18th. What's wrong with that? Like there's been a whole lot happening since uh, she, uh, she said that Omicron was a game changer. Well, it has been, quite obviously. Pardon me? It has been, obviously. No, not in the way of travelers. She talked about. Uh, she talked a lot about in her uh, in her talk about the travelers and the boats and the and the planes and the whole thing. But. Uh you know, so, well, so, it does yeah. have an impact on travel. Of course it does. When it's yeah. just so highly transmissible, it has an impact on everything. Well, she was uh, she was uh, uh, referring to the Omicron as a game changer, and she was advising uh, um, our federal government to lift some of those mandates, and she was particularly mentioning the travel. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and sure, like a lot of our visitors, if they wanted to come home, sure, they can uh, drive. But what if somebody is driving from the other end of our country, like say all the way to from Fort McMurray or Vancouver Island or somewhere like what if they have a certain uh, uh, amount of vacation time? Well, that's all very well that they have an option to, to come across the ferry. But in, in, uh, you know, in fairness, what 
how long of a time would it take them to travel completely across the country? But in fairness, you, their little bit of vacation in, in, their, in their own province. In, look, I get it. But in fairness, you said there's no option, but there is an option. I mean, so I'm just kind of most oh, yeah. interested in talking about what's actually going on versus some of the way things, some of these issues have been couched. I've been very clear. I think it's time to talk about that mandate. It just is. We have gone on from uh, convincing, coercing, uh, encouraging people to get vaccinated to now it's straight up punishment because nobody else is out there who's unvaccinated is going to do it. That's it. It's over. The conversation is absolutely over. And the same thing with the fourth dose that will be discussed by Dr. Fitzgerald today. The hysterical notes I got last night were just enough to drive me around the bend. Unless they change the definition from two doses plus 14 days to consider yourself fully vaccinated, unless that changes, then why is anybody worried about what Dr. Fitzgerald is going to have to say today? Unless it's going to be part of a mandate, then do what you see fit for you and your own personal health and who you think you are in a robust immune system, your age, whatever. So it, it just that's where it's kind of arrived at an end point for me Linda is that we're not considering any of the the actual realities on the ground we've been so caught up in the emotion of the pandemic which I completely understand but we're talking through emotion and hysteria versus what's actually going on which I don't think is helping anybody regardless of your stance on any issue mandates vaccines immunity system health vitamins sunlight summer versus winter like we just got to try to Everyone takes a step back, deep breath, re-engage in the conversation from a starting point that is not based strictly in emotion. And whether or not you like or don't like Justin Trudeau, whether or not you like or don't like uh, uh, Dr. Theresa Tan, because that's what's overwhelmed all of us now, because that's how the conversations begin, and unfortunately that's how they end. Yes, I agree 100% with that, Patty. And I think it is time for somebody to, to, to lift some of those mandates. And uh, to, watch, uh, uh, to watch Minister Crocker come on uh, couple of weeks ago and, and um, announced that they're giving away four free trips to Newfoundland and Labrador. They're giving away four trips so that some of our uh, Newfoundlanders can get home and enjoy. And uh, I think it's just gone on way too long and it's so unfair to the people who cannot get here because they decided not to put those shots in their bodies. And, yeah. and yes, it's too much of a punishment happening right now. And, you know, yeah. there's also, and I don't want to have this conversation right now, but there's also a legitimate discussion we had as to why people didn't. Yeah. Because that's been also extremely problematic. Uh, Linda, I appreciate you making time for the show. Thanks for this. Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, I hope that somebody can uh, look at this and, and try to figure out uh, some solution because it has gone on far too long. Thanks for the time, Linda. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, which is the best one to sneak in here? Line number two? Okay, because I really want to talk to Pam about the domestic violence policy or strategy that we need in the province. But line number two, Edward, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Uh, uh, interesting show you have there in the... Uh, uh, I got to tell you, um, your level of knowledge amazes me sometimes. But uh, anyway, I uh, just wanted to make a quick comment regarding the uh, the road situation in Newfoundland. I know you had a gentleman call in a little earlier, and uh, I I live in the Bay Roberts area, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the section of the highway uh, Route 60 that travels up to the main main part of Bay Roberts, and that part of the road is uh, looked after by the provincial government. It's not something that the town is responsible to maintain. 
Uh, and right now, uh, that road, there's quite a number of uh, very hazardous potholes uh, all over the place. And it just amazes me when I go drive up that road and I see probably in a two-kilometer stretch probably seven or eight signs propped up saying potholes ahead. Now, my uh, point is if the local Department of Highways or Transportation and Works, whatever they're called, if they got time to send someone out to put up a sign telling you that there's a pothole ahead, why can't they send the same people with a pickup truck and a few bags of cold patch to put in those same potholes and fix? I know it's not a permanent fix. And but at least it'll eliminate the hazard for someone uh, doing thousands of dollars worth of damage to uh, their vehicle. And I had I had a chuckle when uh, someone mentioned on your show, or maybe it was you, Patty, about the hole in the road out uh, near Birchy Lake, and someone had put up two cone traffic cones to warn drivers. Well, yeah, that's a good idea, but wouldn't it be better to go out and, and uh, repair that rather than just put a cone in it? Like I'm. At this time of the year when snow clearing is not, uh, in most areas at least, it's not a high high uh, incidence of need, what, do, what are, are the roads maintenance people doing? They're certainly not fixing potholes. So uh, you know what? that's just my comment. Uh, and and fair enough. Cynical. The, uh, you know, what I would add to that, is I don't understand the process of, okay, there's a pothole reporter, we go out and we do the short-term mitigation, whether it be with the orange sandbags or the orange cones or a sign, then we get a crew to come by to, to repair it. I don't know how they set that up uh, exactly, but I'll also go on to say that. Would we ever be able to, wait, look, we'd eliminate unemployment if we hired enough people to fill all the potholes at one time because the place is littered with it. The best business in the opportunity in this province is to make signs that says pothole head because exactly. the, the crews must be completely inundated. And again, at this time of year, it's a tricky time of year to fill up any of these potholes. The coal patch looks like a solution until six or seven or eight or ten hours later where a number of vehicles gone over it and now it's just spit the coal patch all over the place. So, you know, we've got to come up with a better way. And I think we have to start at the beginning and make sure that the roads are more robust than they are now because we're not getting value for money spent. The roads don't last as long as we need them to. They don't last as long as we see them last in other provinces and or even in portions of Terranova National Park. If we don't start there, we're just going to be chasing our pothole tail forever. You're you're uh, absolutely right. Uh, I mean, how many times, like you say, uh, the roads just don't hold up. I mean, it's almost an annual event uh, in on the Trans-Canada Highway between St. John's and, say, Whitburn to have these uh, pavement grinders out taken off the first level and putting on another couple of inches of asphalt because of the ruts in the road. I mean... I was in the U.S. not long ago, and I was driving over a section of highway there that I estimate there's more cars go over it in an hour than go over most of Newfoundland's roads in, in a week. But the, the pavement is not falling apart. Now, I know they don't have to deal with frost. 
either. But our roads, uh, you're right. I just don't think they're built to an acceptable standard. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, a civil engineer. I don't know, but I've driven on roads in many parts of this world, and it just doesn't seem like ours last long enough. And again, I know people might be tired of hearing it. Between the prep of the bed, the chemical compound, the thickness of the asphalt, the temperature in the air when we do it, the amount of time we leave for it to settle before we put vehicles on it, all play a role in how quickly they rot, potholes form. So, you know, we've just got to try to do better on that front because it's one thing to tell us that you know they're spending 150 million dollars on the roads and they're paving more kilometers than ever before but if they're beat up before long then that's just not good enough that's not nothing to hang your hat on i'll give you the last word edward before i take a break for the news well uh that's all i wanted to say uh patty at this time uh just make a i just want to reinforce i guess what that gentleman ca- uh said who called in about the markland road uh i've driven over that as well and i i can certainly understand frustrations of people in that area but uh, it seems like uh, we spend an awful lot of money on, on our roads and as you said we're not getting the value for the money and uh, it just seems like it's an annual thing fixing the same piece pieces of the road so that's all i have to say patty once again uh, i really enjoy your show and uh your level of knowledge on so many subjects is amazing to me, and I thank you for doing the job you're doing. Well, I appreciate you tuning in, and thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Okay, all the best, Edward. All right, bye-bye. We appreciate uh, Pam and another Edward's uh, patience there in the queue to talk about seniors top up and, of course, the family violence strategy that is so-called lapsed. But we'll talk about what Pam feels about it after this. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Pam. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. Yeah, I wanted to chat a little bit this morning um, about what Minister Parsons had said. Uh, Pam Parsons, not Minister. Well, she is the Minister, actually. She's the Minister of... Uh, uh, women and uh, gender equality. She made a comment, I think you noted at the top of the hour, she was talking about, um, you know, you can't take it in a box, um, you know, so forth and so on, and it's a s- systemic issue. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to point out a couple of things because, you know, having lived through it and, and having experienced it, I, you know, family violence and, and domestic violence are, are, you know, systems that are really perpetrated by government systems. So, you know, talking about... You know, the cultural needs in the community is one thing, but, you know, my personal experience is, you know, the, the system is set up to, you know, apply this bias. And, and also the, the retaliation when you report, report it is, is just, it's, it's so enormous. It's so enormous. But, you know, listening to, to Pam Parsons talk about that <clears throat> yesterday, uh, I guess in response to uh, MHA Ottenheimer's comments, it kind of it really delays process in my opinion because you know lots of things can be done um you know training and retraining the police you know some of my worst experiences have come from police um social workers and and you know most importantly in my personal situation i've experienced a lot of uh, political and professional interference in family matter um and and that you know in turn has influenced how police would respond to things so when when 
Parsons talks about, you know, systemic having conversations around the table. A lot more needs to be done than that. It needs to be done at the government level before, level before you know, the general population will, will simulate. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had police officers, you know, refuse to take police reports, uh, take re- police reports and not allow me to have a copy, uh, refuse to capture, you know, child abuse, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's really profound, my experiences. And, you know, again, at the bottom, at the end of the day, for me, it, the system is broken, but it's, you know, it is the government. It is child protection. And, you know, going back to what an MHA can do about that is, you know, in the House, there's legislation, there's, there's regulations, and there's rules. And, you know, where those exist, and, you know, I can go through the chapters and, and the statutory charters, and, you know, there's no rules to enforce those. So just to give an example of what that means, when the police don't follow the rules, um, based on bias or inexperience or lack of education or training, whatever it is, um, or political and professional interference. There's no recourse. There's absolutely no recourse. There's no recourse to have that documented. And a lot of people would say there is, but I can tell you based on my personal experience, that same bias that influenced that interaction influences every other interaction thereafter. And, um, same with social work and and uh, so forth and so on. So training and retraining professionals is one thing. You know, more importantly, you need to be able to screen these individuals out. And, you know, psychologically, like, are these people teachable? Can you know what do you do when you know a sergeant is the problem? But you know, again, listening to to Parsons talk, there needs to be you know legislation uh, that focuses on rules and following the rules and procedures, and and that's that's where it falls short because we're these individuals don't follow the rules there's no recourse there's absolutely no recourse i wonder what recourse looks like because the arm's length of law enforcement from the government is obviously important we can't have politicians you know day-to-day operations at the rnc or the rcmp so i wonder how that looks because this is a just such i don't know if i was going to say complicated or complex but it's a multifaceted issue which is why there's been long calls for a task force and there's no downside to that as far as i'm concerned but just let's Give folks some context here. Uh, the latest data is unfortunately as far back as 2016. We have high, slightly higher than the national average, but that's only when we talk about uh, domestic violence that's been reported to police. So even before that stat gets included, we have to boil it down to why people aren't reporting it, to your point. Because if we have negative interactions with police, that conversation happens in people's social circles. Next thing you know, if they're involved in gender violence or domestic violence, they may be loath to report. So how are we actually changing the dial or the conversation to start at the beginning because sometimes we look at the at the end point right the number of mercy shelters what it looks like for uh, violent offenders who get bail and protection orders and all those things but when we don't go back to the beginning and talk about it whether it be through education or the other contributing factors because it is multifaceted and we'll focus in on one or two things but we kind of miss some of the starting point conversations Absolutely. And, and, you know, talking about family violence, is, it's not just the physical, you know, and this is the stuff that the stats don't capture. Good, good point on stats. You know, the, the stuff that is not captured that, you know, the police argue is impossible to prove. And I disagree. It's incredibly easy to prove. Financial violence, intimidation, humiliation, et cetera, all that stuff is incredibly easy to prove when it's documented. So you're not going to get a cluster of, you know, you're not going to get a smoking gun, boom, we got this individual. You know, the police would need to document things all the way along, and they might argue we do that with our intimate partner volunteer units. Well, I'll tell you, give you one example. When you call the intimate partner volunteer units, they're, they're not collecting information for police processes, in a sense, under the criminal code. 
should you indicate a criminal code violation, they're going to tell you to call the general line and report it. And that that person who answers that phone or, you know, depending on luck, depending on who you guess, they're going to say, oh, go on the Internet and report something. Do you know on the drop-down menu for the police reporting online, there's no category for family violence. There's nothing even close to it. But, you know, not, and not just that, but there's no way to effectively document it. And that, to me, indicates something very profound that should be said. They don't want to document it. This is basic elementary stuff. It's really easy to document this stuff. They don't want to. You know, for example, harassment. You know, you have to document that to build a case. Uh, you know, the financial stuff, so the, you know, the triangulation, the gaslighting, all that stuff is very technical and, and difficult, uh, but it's very much intertwined with family violence. And if you look at it in isolation, it doesn't look that bad. But when you look at it as, as you know, as in its entirety, it is the buildup to something physical sometimes. Or it's the aftermath of something physical and lifelong. But it's that piece of legislation that exists, the Family Violence Act, um, yeah, was, you know, initiated a long time ago. But, you know, my contact with judges and police and, you know, social workers, when you, when you start to break down what is in that act, you know, and even in a courtroom, like, I've seen a judge scratching their head. Like, they didn't know what I was talking about. So it, it's hard to believe. It really is hard to believe. But it is it is something that, you know, is very much achievable on a very basic level. And I just want to touch on the task force you mentioned. Task force have been developed. They've been done. I mean, it's been done. I think um, Andrew Parsons had developed uh, some back, you know, many years ago with, with the uh, the Women's Center. And task force will produce a report. But unless somebody puts something into action, unless, you know, the, there's an outcome for that, the task force analysis and, and the, you know, report means nothing unless it's put into a plan. I guess this is what Otten uh, and Parsons were talking about the other day. But it it really is a government problem because I'll tell you, you know, my experience with going down through this stuff, you know, and looking at it, my personal experience has been political and professional interference on a family court matter, which, you know, is a, is a violation of Bill 464. Like, where do you go when that happens? So I guess my question to you, Patty, and the general public is, you know, when when the rules aren't followed and there isn't clear direction, because we, we know there isn't clear direction on this, and the rules aren't followed and you're met with bias, you know, where do you go? What do you do? What's the recourse? Politicians, you can't call up the MHA and say, listen, he's smashed down my window again. That's not their job. But, you know, to get the police to respond to it appropriately and just document it, it does, you know, it doesn't need to be yeah, a, lengthy, a lengthy thing. But, you know, in my, and in my situation in particular, when you have professional and political interference on family court matter at a profound level, profound level, you know, that's a violation of a federal bill. Like, nobody cares. The police don't care. The bounties tell you to call the RNC. The RNC is not their jurisdiction. In their jurisdiction, it's it's a loop. It's a circle. And I, I honestly, I don't think the politicians understand what they need to do. But there needs to be uh, a procedure, a procedural manual for following the rules. And when those rules aren't followed, there needs to be an easier process to have them followed. Minister Parsons will point to things they've done in the House of Assembly, and some of these are helpful, including changes to the Landlord Tenancies Act, which allows to a person who's the, the, the victim in domestic violence to end their lease, no penalty. So these are little things, but when you do them one by one by one, they add up to pragmatic change and very positive change. So the numbers are staggering in this province. And if you're saying that you're, the interaction with the police is, has been a big problem for you, 
you and it obviously would have been problems for others and they've told their friends so now we don't even know the prevalence of it in the community which is and if your point is uh, I have no reason not to believe you if they don't want to take the reports then we have no earthly idea about what's actually happening none no. so it's it's a devastatingly problematic issue and it's heartbreaking to know just how common it is in this province and it does disproportionately affect women inevitably someone will send me an email say you always forget about men on the receiving end no i don't but the facts are clear disproportionately affects women and yes we probably do need some sort of emergency shelter for men i get all that stuff but it becomes such a tangle whether it be reliance on the partner's paycheck or a pet or a child or a home whatever it is it becomes a different case for every individual because they're not all created the same. Uh, I'll give you the last word, Pam, before I take a break. Yeah, I just want to point out again, you know, the system is not set up to document things as it should. And, and like you said, talk about systemic change and, and collecting information one by one, as you noted, to, to make a bigger case and, and to change attitudes and whatnot. But I just, I'll leave you with this, you know, go, encourage your listeners, go to the RNC website and look Go to the drop-down menu to file a police report. You know, don't file one, but just go through it. There's nothing there for family violence. What does that say? What does that say to you? What does that say to the public? I've highlighted this to the police on multiple occasions. Um, it's, it's it's not good enough. It should and, and imagine if you could avoid having a face-to-face initially with the police and, and go online and, and fill that out and get it written, documented, and, and clear and concise, and then talk about it after the fact. That would be so therapeutic. So therapeutic. The avenue doesn't exist. Pam, I really appreciate your time. This is a tricky subject, but I'm glad we're talking about it. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Edward. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Boy, you're a busy man. That we are. I guarantee you. Very busy. Busy, uh, Patty, what I'm calling about is uh, it's the old age assistant. I I hear it from other people, and they are all frigged up. What's frigged up? Uh, how it's going and what's coming out and all like that. Okay, well, there's a bunch of different areas, and I'm trying my level best to keep it all straight because it's there's a lot of different areas where there's some additional supports coming. So do you have something in particular or specifically you want to talk about? No, well, I'm, in the, uh, I'm an old-age citizen, eh? Yep. And I'm wondering about how much I'm going to get or what is it getting or something. It's You know what? Unfortunately, one of the first questions I have to ask is how old are you? 80-something. Okay, if you're in your 80s, then you're going to see a 10% increase to your all-age security. Yeah. And you would have got a one-time $500 uh, check from the yes. government. Then if you qualify for the seniors' benefit, which means you have a net family income of less than 19000 ish dollars, you'll see another 10% increase up to $1,444. There's those who on income supplement, they get another 10%. There's a one-time benefit to folks receiving income support. And the way it breaks down is that you would have got 200 bucks for a single, $400 for a family. That money would have went out in the first week of the month. There's yeah. also so, okay, so there are the pots of money. And then if you indeed were on guaranteed income supplement and were technically eligible, I don't know if this applies to you, technically eligible for some pandemic support, specifically the CERB, if it impacted your GIS, which reduced your number because that's a, a, added to your income, you were getting a $500 check in the week of April 18th. So those are all the pots that I can think of off the top of my head, and I don't know which one applies to you. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know myself. I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> so you're on all age security? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah so you're going to see 10% uh, increase, yeah. and that's going to take place forever. So yeah. that's the basics there. And the GIS is 200 for individuals, three or 400 for families. Oh, four. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Now, I got, now I got a, a, a race. Everybody was telling me, and they're telling me different all the time. <laughs> okay, so what did I tell you that was different than what you heard? Because I want to make sure I'm giving you accurate information. Oh, no, like uh, where I'm, I'm getting this, uh, I get 10%. That's the one I'm talking about. And the old age security. Yes, you do, sir. Everyone over the age of 75. Yes, yeah. Okay, sir, and that's it. I want. What part of the province are you calling from, Edward? Uh, well, St. John's, sir. St. John's? Very good. Yeah. Appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Yeah, I called you before last year about the sand and I bring that we weren't getting around on Calvert Street. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I'm buying this year. They were up too much with too much of <laughs> I, I, I could go out and scoop it up with a with a shovel. You can't win. No, but that, that's good. That's better more than too little. I mean, some of the streets in my neighborhood, they were white like they were uh, dusty gravel roads. After the snow went away and the ice went away, driving around would kick it up like you're driving around on a dusty road. That's right. Yep. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I suppose that's yeah. better than sliding all over the place. Oh, a lot better. Well, Paddy, I uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it a lot what, for what you're doing, not only for me, for the, for Newfoundland. Well, I appreciate you making time for the show. I wish you well. Stay in touch, Edward. Yeah, yeah. may God bless. You Bye. too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, yeah, there you go. Uh, how are we doing on the phones there, David? Let's take a break. When we come back, Denise is there to talk about vaccines and travel, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com Welcome back. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, Denise. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing, bye? Doing fine, bye. You? Good, good. Uh, Patty, I got a call in. Uh, I haven't called since this whole COVID thing and um, and I know you said that you know, we shouldn't let our emotions play into it and everybody take a step back or we should try try at least because i know it's impossible you know i'm going to tell you what it is impossible because since my choice i'm not vaccinated that was a hard choice i do have my reasons and one of them being that i have personally seen so many effects from people being vaccinated i have not personally thank god seen anybody die from COVID, but I have seen a lot of effects from the vaccine, my husband included. He has some difficulties since he's been vaccinated. Now, he's on a different page than I am, so whether or not he'll ever admit that, probably not. But I know, I can see, and I've talked to others who got the same symptoms, and it has been since he's been vaccinated, so I know in my heart. But anyway, that's... What I meant, like what I'm meaning to say is that it's hard to not be emotional because since I've made my choice, I have lost my job, uh, I've lost friends, and I've also lost family because they're afraid to be around unvaxxed people. And at the beginning, I certainly understand with the fear that was put out there, I would have understood that. But now, like you said, we're on the ground, the facts are coming through. There's no difference in the spread of yes, there who's is. spreading it. Oh, do you think? There, there absolutely is. You do said you me- really? Okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but no, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's not many of us left that's not vaxxed around here, okay? Yeah. My friends, uh, both his wife and daughter, are triple vaxxed. Yep. He lives in the same household. He is not vaxxed. 
Um, he purposely stayed in the house when both of them had COVID, and he purposely stayed there. He did not avoid them. He did not even wash his hands. Strange choice. And he came through it and did not catch COVID, and he's not vaccinated. So what's that point? What's the, the point you're making is there? because you were going to tell me that there's, uh, there is a difference in the spread. Plus, I also, myself, not vaccinated, I caught COVID from, an un- for, sorry, from a vaccinated student that spent time here. How do you know that? Oh, I know. I, have, I wasn't anywhere else. And the little girl, the student that comes here, she came Saturday morning. She was here all Saturday, all Sunday. Her grandmother messaged me and apologized for sending her down because her sister just tested positive for COVID. And she had no idea that her other granddaughter could be carrying it because she was so, showing no symptoms. So, of course, I wasn't upset because nobody can predict that, right? But... Um, the next day she calls me and said she's positive. So I go and get tested a few days later. I'm positive. I wasn't anywhere else. So I'm pretty uh, 99% sure that I caught it from her. So that's what I'm saying. And that's not even what I'm trying to point out here. What I am trying to point out is, and of course, there goes the emotional part because it is hard not to get emotional, right? But what my problem is also is about the mandates okay i totally understand at the beginning uh you know like them trying to put mandates in place because of course people did think that it was mostly spread through the onvax which again i'll argue that it's not true but here here's this mandate for people to travel okay um we have a few unvaxxed people you know that's what all the provinces are saying there's only few and so they're not allowed to travel but here we are in newfoundland inviting practically the whole nation to newfoundland for come home year now we know that most of these variants are coming in through travelers so how many variants are all of these people going to bring to newfoundland by uh traveling here for come home year and then there's a few unvaccinated ones that are not allowed to travel Okay, a few things. There's a difference in the viral load and the numbers of days for potential spread versus uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated. It's well understood, well proven. It, well, it, well it's, I'm it, not it, around it's, these here parts, not with our situation. Well, it's not about your situation. It's about people who actually do research, who understand oh, the issues okay. and can do it okay. and peer okay. review Listen, it. I've, I've researched for the past couple of years. I've read things that we're not supposed to read because that's where the truth is. But I'm only giving you uh, examples of, of what's happened here. So I think... I see what's and happening I, here. And I know I'm being quick. I know I am. I know I am. And But like I said, it is hard to be emotional because here I am unvaccinated. I've been through so much in the past couple of years. And if, if it was true that the vaccinated people didn't spread it as quick, I would certainly, certainly understand people getting vaccinated. But in, it, it, to me, there's no facts of that. It's there spreading. is, though, Denise. Denise, there are. I mean, you might not want to hear them or see them or read them. And that's fine. People will do as they see fit here. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is just patently not true. And when it comes to the numbers of people who are vaccinated, vaccinated people can get it and spread it. I've always said it because it's mm-hmm. a fact. You're three times more likely to be hospitalized in this province if you are not vaccinated. That's the facts. Whether no, or not, no, it's not. It is the facts. It's the hey, facts. I had COVID. You, that's, but that's uh, you. You're one person. The family you're one person, were, Denise. Were, I just no, don't. Okay. No, no, no. I All right. I'll, I'll just let you go on. I'll just sit here quietly no, until you're, until you're done. 
that are not vaccinated, we didn't end up in hospital. I know people are vaccinated. But Denise, you don't know everyone in the province. I mean, let's be honest here. When we're talking about the big scheme of things, it's not about you and your family and your buddies. It's just not how it works. And then you say we'll come home here, bringing in the variants. Mm -hmm. The issue with bringing in the bringing in COVID is long behind us. It's here. It's everywhere. Exactly. Right. Hence why they should drop the mandate. But that's a federal issue. That's got nothing to do with the province. That, no, so that's listen, where it's a different conversation. My whole point of calling was about the mandates and the travel. And that's what I'm saying. We will always have different views on who spreads and who carries or whatever. Okay, that's understandable. We have to take that for what it is. But... Uh, this is about the mandates, and like I said, I've lost my job over the mandate, which doesn't make sense. And I think as time goes on, I think people will see that the mandates really did not make a difference. I don't think they did. Okay. I don't know what else to say. We're never going to agree on it. I, I, I run into this every day since I chose not to be vaccinated. But but you're choosing the emotional road. I try to uh, put that away because I don't know you. I don't know your family. I don't know your friends. Yeah. So my emotions have nothing to do with it. No, absolutely. But I have, listen, I have done a lot of research in the past couple of years. And there's information out there that that the authorities and the big like what? wigs don't like want. What? Oh, my God. Now, Patty, name I got one. a brain on me, but I haven't got that kind of brain to name remember one. all that I've read. Just name one. I can't. I can't, but I have tons and tons of info that the facts are. Okay, well, how many people are in hospital right now? Uh, a lot. There was 35 last go-around, I think. How many people were in hospital before the vaccines? <laughs> The right. issue, but the, the public health policies and protections and protocols were different then than they are today. The issue with the transmissibility of the original SARS-CoV-2 strain is different than it is today with Omicron and BA2. Unless we factor all those things in and the drop of all these mandates and restrictions, until we include all the actual facts, there's no sense having a conversation about what it looked like then, what it looks like now, unless we include everything that's in play no, and, and in place. And there's absolutely no sense of, like I said, with somebody who backs the vaccine and thinks it works and so somebody who doesn't there is no sense to have a conversation there either because i read different facts than what somebody else reads so it's you know what it, it is no point but my whole fact is i'm just hoping that um you know like these mandates will be dropped and hopefully others will realize that the mandates did not work appreciate That's the time basically. denise all right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go to line number. Okay, Dave wants me to take a break. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, line number three. Caller, you're on the air. You are. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show, John. I'm going to have to cut you off now on speaker. Please do. Okay, let's go, John. That's, that's better. Okay, go ahead. I don't know if I'm behind the scenes on this, but how much I wonder did Myra Green get paid for her advice to the government? I've never seen a price tag associated with that report, but they weren't paid big numbers. They were paid uh, honorariums. I think there was some travel covered for Moya Green, but I think the ultimate price tag wasn't as whopping big as people think, because I know some people were on it, and they got very small honorariums when they did some meetings and stuff, so I don't think it was a big number. Well, I think they should be open and about how much they spent on it. Yeah, I, I can figure that out. I'll find out. 
and the five million five million dollars went to the Rothschilds. Now I'm sure there was companies here in Newfoundland could have done the same thing. Maybe. There might have been a collection of people that could have uh, replicated it, but it's these are also people that have real jobs. So I'm not defending the spend because I think it's unnecessary, but I'm not so sure, you know, whether we have some of the big successful business people and people from Memorial University and the like, but we're also talking about people that do something else for a living. So there's there's a bit of a trick inside of that. Uh, but now I don't defend spending five million American right after we had the Green Report. No, no. And I'm wondering just how much it's going to cost us, the Newfoundland public and the Canadian public, for Charles and Camilla to visit us. Well, there's well, the price tag is, remains to be seen because it hasn't been uh, there's been no invoice yet. But my understanding is they travel via the Royal Canadian Air Force, and then it would be cost for security and food and accommodations when they're here. But I don't think they're here very long. But you know, any dollar spent on that, I think, is for lack of a better term, waste of money. Waste of money. Yes, uh, you agree, and I agree. Because what are they doing here? Nothing. They're showing the Queen's colours. As far as I'm concerned, we are a nation and we should have our own we have our own constitution. So why do we need to be part of the British Empire? No good reason. There's been parts of the world that have cut ties with the monarchy. I don't know how close this country would be. I would imagine not very close at all. But the Bahamas did, and Jamaica just did. And so I think, you know, especially some of the Caribbean nations, because they have a different history and track record with the monarchy than we do here in this country. There's a lot of really big human uh, life atrocities, I would refer to, that, you know, is their life versus what we've experienced as a colony. Well, I don't, I don't uh, care for that too much. That's not a waste of money. And uh, something else I'd like to find out, and I can't uh, seem to get any information on, is regionalization. Oh, okay. That's going to be a big question, and nobody can seems to be able to answer it, or nobody seems to want to answer it. Uh. Crystalline Hell don't seem to uh, want to talk about it too much. Uh, go to www.government.nl. Well, for me, I don't have a computer. And uh, some of the people that I know are not interested into it. But when they get uh, bills from some community living alongside them that uh, has nothing at all to do with them, like me, I pay for my garbage here. I have a $12,000 artesian well. I have $11,000 septic system. So what is the next community going to do for me? Nothing. Okay. I don't think we've had that full conversation yet on what regionalization might look like because it's going to be different everywhere around the province. I know you want to bounce around to a, a bunch of topics, so I'll let you have a couple more cracks, and then I'm going to squeeze in another couple before I have to wrap it up. No, Paddy, I'm, uh, I'm going to give out some bouquets. Are you ready? Fire away. You. You deserve a bouquet. If you don't have an answer... You don't belong finding out, and you don't belong telling people of where uh, something lies and how it should be answered, and you really are a help to people. We try when we can. I mean, I, I know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know. 
Well, you don't be long finding out if you don't know. Anyway, uh, Paddy, I'm going to say you should be the omnibus one. Or (laughs) you should run for politics. Well, you'll be the only truthful one in politician. Because you call it like it is, and that's too bad. Yeah, I'm not everyone's cup of tea, and that's nature of the beast. Not trying to please everybody. Uh, and if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. So <laughs> we'll see where it goes. John, anything quick before I sneak in two more? Well, we've had our little disagreements, but yes. uh, in the end, we've uh, agreed to disagree. And I can still call you, and I can still call on you. 100%. So thank you very much. Appreciate the time, John, as usual. Okay. Then. All Bye. the best. Okay, uh, can I get two of these on, Dave? What do you think? All right, let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hello, Penny. Yeah. I want to refer you back to uh, uh, an item uh, earlier this morning. It was a discussion about the the NASCAR racing. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I think the uh, idea was that... uh, uh, we have better things to do with our money. And, uh, well, I want to add something else. And it's quite interesting that uh, uh, Premier Andrew Fury, uh, being a doctor, has uh, uh, put the... It seems like things have gone backwards. And here's a, a Steve Crocker. I have an issue... Uh, <clears throat> with a person who's in his uh, his riding it's it's about the uh, uh, there's uh, the the prescription drug program I know of a a disabled person who was on um, income support they had a, a had a problem with a, a rash on the, on the body Rash was white pimples, and they went to the doctor and had several prescriptions had tried, and it failed. But they went to a, a dermatologist who uh, prescribed a medication, and it cost $54. It was, but, however, it wasn't covered. And... Uh, the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Prescription Drug Program was uh, they were notified it, it was uh, <clears throat> the, the to for the need for coverage and it was turned down. Now I uh, I think there's a big difference in the urgency of uh, those two uh, different items and also uh, you know I. I like I said, due to Andrew Fury, he, who was a doctor, and and these situations, they should be you should try and and find out the in the more or less the urgency. And uh, I might add that the, uh, the the prescription that was done up by the, the dermatologist that worked. It cleared up the situation. Good, you know. And uh, but uh, I don't know what uh, uh, what this NASCAR racing can, can, what 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 problems that that clears up. It's it's the money. Uh, I think money is scarce, and I I think <clears throat> I don't believe it's money well spent. 
I think you're in the majority. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. I'm glad that the uh, the ointment or the the salve that was uh, prescribed worked, though. Yes. I appreciate you making time for the program. Thanks for the call. Yeah, I'd like to get that. I, I, I want to get that over the air. You know, let, let people hear that. You know, it's it's sometimes things, little things are, are are important sometimes. Of course they are. Hundred percent. Thank you, Freddie. I appreciate your time. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's go. Last word goes to the Director of Fund Development at Ronald McDonald House. That's Christina Morgan. Good morning, Christina. You're on the air. Hi, Christina. You're on the air. Well, let me carry the mail for Christina. This afternoon, beginning at 1 o'clock, running all the way to 5 p.m. this afternoon, right here on all of the VOCM stations, we're having a radiothon in an effort to raise funds. Oh, she is there now. Let's give her one more try before I go. Christina Morgan, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's Christina. Yep. Well, let me follow through. So her, her call dropped on her end. Uh, the radiothon is indeed this afternoon to raise monies for Ronald McDonald House. They've been open for 10 years, and they probably should have been here 10 years prior. But we're going to try to raise some much-needed funds for families of uh, terminally ill children or very ill children for their accommodations right here alongside the Health Sciences and the Janeway right here in the city of St. John. So please, if you have the capacity to dig in and make a donation to Ronald McDonald House, with myself and Linda Swain, we'll kick off that show at 1 p.m. All right, good show this morning. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk at one and in the morning. Bye-bye.